You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by BetterHelp. Start living a happier life today and get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash missionlog. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 427, Inter Arma Anim Sealand Legas. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at each and every moment of Star Trek, from the series to the movies, and see if they withstand the test of time, and try to find the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. This week, Inter Arma Enem Silent Legis, the one where the title says it all, as long as you can actually say the title. And we'll be right back with trivia, but first, here is how all of you can stay in touch with all of us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter, then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here is John Champion with this week's trivia. All right. Today's episode was written by Ronald D. Moore. Heavy influence here from Ira Stephen Bear. But what's fun is that Ron really got to pick up the plot from Inquisition, where we're introduced to Sloan, and then run with it. And uh, now Inquisition was a while back, but uh, partly uh, the, the whole cast and crew here, they were willing to wait on William Sadler's availability. So hence the, uh, the delay between Inquisition and this episode. Incidentally, the last standalone episode of DS9 that we will have before the race to the end. So it's a momentous uh, occasion here. This was directed by David Livingston, and here's, well, yet another landmark in a career full of landmarks for David, who started way back in the beginning of TNG as a producer. This is the final DS9 he directed, but don't worry, we will catch up with him again for a great deal of Voyager, and then on to Enterprise. We have a new ship here, the USS Bellerophon, a classic name pulled right out of Greek mythology and was the name of one of Lord Nelson's ships. And we did have a reference to the Bellerophon in Emissary. This is a different one, though, and it is Intrepid class, exact same model as the USS Voyager, which, well, made it really easy to shoot. And it's kind of funny. Some of the uh, effect shots, if you look closely, you actually see the registry number of the Voyager, <laughs> but made it very easy for set pieces. They could just go use the set pieces from Voyager for this episode. Now let's talk about our guest stars. As mentioned, we get Sloan back from Section 31, and uh, we also get Admiral Ross back, played by Barry Jenner. Now, 
We meet some new Romulans along the way, too. Well, some new old Romulans. We have Neral returning from TNG's Unification 1 and 2. Well, the, the character returns, although this time played by a different actor, Hal Landon Jr., And it's interesting that Hal's very first on-screen role was in a David Lynch film. That would be Eraserhead. Many TV and feature film appearances resulted, but he may be best known as Captain Logan, who is Ted's father in the Bill and Ted movies. We also spend a lot of time with Koval, played by John Fleck. We've mentioned John before since uh, his very first Trek appearance was back in TNG's fourth season in The Mind's Eye. So he's played a Romulan before, and he has appeared as a couple of other species on DS9, including a Cardassian. He just keeps popping up, and he'll be on Voyager, and then in a major recurring role on Enterprise. Outside of Trek, you may have seen him very briefly in the Babylon 5 pilot or in the series Carnival. Finally, Senator Kretak, uh, first played by Megan Cole, is played in this episode by Adrienne Barbeau. And she might be a familiar name to many listeners. She got her start on stage at first and then transitioned into TV early on. She had a recurring role on the sitcom Maud, but where you probably know her is some great 80s cult films like Escape from New York and The Fog and, of course, Swamp Thing. And I appreciate that she was in Cannonball Run. While this is her only Trek appearance, Adrienne was up for the role of Ardra in TNG's Devil's Due. The title is in Latin and the episode spotlights Dr. Bashir. I have a feeling we're going to name a new form of bacteria before we're done here today. Prologue Colonel Kira is holding a weekly meeting with certain representatives of the Allied forces engaged in the Dominion War, namely Senator Kretak, representing the Romulan Star Empire, Commander Worf, who is Starfleet's tactical liaison, and Chief O'Brien and Odo, representing Deep Space Nine's engineering and security needs, respectively. Senator Kretak laments that the Romulan warbirds aren't receiving the necessary repairs they deserve, as Worf responds in kind, stating that the Klingons deserve preferential treatment because the Klingon forces sustain the heaviest damage as the front line. The chief is ready to oblige whoever needs repairs first, and Odo is mainly concerned with not having both Klingon and Romulan forces on the station during leave rotations at the same time. Not an easy puzzle to solve, but Colonel Kira smooths over everyone's needs for now and adjourns the meeting. She also mentions that Senator Kretak will be off station the following week, attending a medical conference on Romulus, which brings us to Dr. Bashir, who is sharing his usual repartee in the replimat with Garrick, who laments the good doctor's disinterest in gathering vital military intelligence during the conference for the benefit of Starfleet intelligence. Bashir reminds Garrick that the Romulans are allies, and Garrick, much to his chagrin, is just as quick to retort that Bashir is ever the eternal optimist. Later in the middle of the night, Dr. Bashir is suddenly awakened from sleep from the presence of a very familiar shadowy figure. Dressed head to toe in a black leather uniform, Luther Sloan sits at the foot of Bashir's bed and tells the good doctor, Section 31 has an assignment for you. Act 1 As Dr. Bashir threatens to call for help, Sloan assures him that their privacy is well in hand thanks to certain precautions Section 31 always ensures in these private meetings. 
Bashir reminds Sloane that he doesn't work for Section 31. But to Sloane, that's just a minor disagreement. Sloane then goes on to explain to Julian that at the medical conference, since the Tal Shiar will be hands-on with security, that Section 31 needs a more specialized, organic asset to gather intelligence, as security measures would no doubt discover any kind of surveillance technology. Sloan wants to take full advantage of this opportunity to gather intelligence on the current state of Romulan political affairs, especially the pulse of the Romulan leadership. Sloan lays it out simply to Bashir. After the war, after the Dominion is defeated, the battered remains of the Klingon military will be in no position to vie for dominance. So that just leaves the Federation and the Romulans, and Section 31 needs to keep the Federation at the ready if the Romulans decide to turn on their so-called ally. Bashir, during Sloan's entire briefing, continues to remind him that he doesn't nor has ever confirmed accepting his invitation to join Sloan in Section 31. But Sloan retorts that even though this may be true, Bashir's curiosity and his need to understand the secrets and the plan that Sloan knows will be enough to change Julian's mind. Sloan leaves, and after Julian chases him with phaser in hand into the hallway, he runs into Esri and loses Sloan's scent completely. Later in Sisko's office, Julian tells the captain everything that has transpired only hours ago, and is surprised that Captain Sisko encourages him to go along with Sloan's plans, and to work with Admiral Ross to gather the very type of intelligence on the Romulans that Sloan tried to convince him to do. So it's off to the USS Bellerophon and to the medical conference on Romulus, as our man Bashir is ready to play his part as double agent, but for real this time. Act 2. Aboard the Intrepid-class Federation starship Bellerophon, Dr. Bashir, Admiral Ross, and Senator Kretak partake in a few glasses of Romulan ale, to which the Admiral finds somewhat overwhelming, as he admits he's never really indulged in it because it was illegal. Dr. Bashir salutes his perseverance with the phrase, Never say die, which attracts a certain Mr. Wendell Greer to their conversation. After regaling Dr. Bashir and his party as to the origins of such a quirky slogan, Greer, or rather, Sloan, who managed to sneak himself on board the Bellerophon using an alias, pulls the good doctor away from the admiral and senator, only to remind Bashir of his mission, which is all recorded in great detail on a pad waiting for Bashir in his quarters, along with the parameters of his mission, should he choose to accept it. Afterwards in the briefing room, serving as Admiral Ross's office, Dr. Bashir reveals that Sloan is on board as an active operative for Section 31, Ross has even gone so far as to check in on Sloane's alias, of which Ross is impressed with Sloane's cover story. However, much like Captain Sisko earlier, Ross believes that Dr. Bashir should maintain his relationship with Sloane because he believes that it is a good idea for Bashir to use his position as a guest lecturer at the conference to read the room for possible Romulan intelligence gathering, but to also keep in Sloane's good graces and trust so that Ross has the time to figure out why Section 31 is so interested in the goings-on at the conference. Later in Sloan's quarters, he tests Dr. Bashir's genetically enhanced intelligence with a series of holograms depicting several high-ranking Romulan officials of whom will be in attendance at the conference, especially a certain chairman of the Tal Shiar named Kaval. Section 31 believes this man is responsible for the assassination of Starfleet Admiral Fujisaki, which was discredited as merely an accidental death by food poisoning. Kaval is also at political odds with Senator Kretak as she favors the Romulan Federation alliance, of which Kaval outwardly opposes, 
To the best of Sloan's information, Caval suffers from a rare disease called Tuvan syndrome, and it's up to Bashir to visually confirm Caval's physical signs of being plagued with this incurable disease. Once again, Bashir tries to excuse himself from playing into Sloan's hands, stating that he's giving Bashir and his genetic gifts too much credit. However, Sloan knows how talented Bashir's powers of observations really are, so there's no getting off the hook for the good doctor. And even as Bashir tries to reason with Sloan about his plans are in direct violation of several Federation charter policies, Sloan simply responds by encouraging the doctor to get some needed rest as they are soon to reach Romulus. Act 3. As the conference is well underway on Romulus, and as all attending are dressed in their most formal attire during a formal reception, Dr. Bashir soon meets with Caval, who is quick to dispense with any pleasantries and is only interested in the dispersal process of the quickening virus, the plague that the Dominion unleashed on the Teplin population by the Gem Hadar. Nice to meet you too, Caval. Suddenly, Bashir is approached by Senator Kretak, who observed Bashir and Caval from a distance and is impressed that Caval even deigned to talk to anyone, let alone someone wearing a Starfleet uniform. Jokingly, she tells Bashir that he should be recruited by Starfleet intelligence for such a feat, but their conversation quickly turns a bit more serious, as both of them believe that this reception and this conference is undoubtedly laced with intelligence operatives on all sides. She also confesses to Bashir that she and Caval are indeed at odds about the Federation-Romulan alliance, which is why there has been tension between her and Caval for the past six months. Later, after Bashir concludes his lecture on the Teplin quickening virus, and after the room is clear and empty of attendees, Sloan, keeping up his Greer alias, questions the doctor on what he was able to observe regarding Caval and any outward symptoms of Tuvan syndrome. Bashir believes that Caval is only in the earliest stages of the disease, to which Sloan further asks how to exacerbate it, or how to trigger it in a more lethal form. Hint, hint. Bashir, either feigning ignorance or for show, admits to Sloan that he has no idea what Sloan is referring to. Back on the Bellerophon in Admiral Ross's ready room, Dr. Bashir briefs Ross on exactly what Sloan has in mind for Caval, and that a certain dosage of nadion radiation can in fact accelerate Caval's Tuvan syndrome to its most lethal form. He also believes that Sloan may be working with a Romulan agent as well, because Sloan has just been too well informed about certain details during this whole operation. Bashir believes the right thing to do is to inform the Romulan High Council immediately of Sloan's plan, but Ross cautions them not to be hasty, as the admittance of Section 31 and a dangerous assassin at large like Sloan is certain to destabilize an already shaky alliance with the Romulans, who the Federation still desperately needs in this war against the Dominion. Ross orders Bashir to stand down and to wait for further orders. Meanwhile, after returning to the Bellerophon's mess hall, Bashir overhears two officers talking about an admiral who has suddenly been taken to sickbay due to an aneurysm. Bashir confirms it is Admiral Ross as he leaves to seek out the admiral's condition, and he spots Sloan sitting with a guest with ever the slightest of a wry smile on his face. Act 4. Returning to Romulus, Dr. Bashir believes that the only person he can confide in during this desperate time is Senator Kretak. In an empty lecture room, he tells her what has befallen Admiral Ross, and that due to the conference being blanketed in a communications blackout, he cannot call Deep Space Nine for help. Bashir also informs her that he believes that Sloan is in fact working with a Romulan agent, 
and that if she can access certain state secret files, they could prove that a conspiracy has been formed between Sloan and Caval in an attempt to stabilize the Federation-Romulan alliance. Bashir admits that he's chosen to trust her in his own attempt to put aside centuries of mistrust and secrecy that has plagued their peoples. Back on the Bellerophon, Bashir is trying to buy himself and the senator some time to find information on Caval and admits to Sloan that he may have been premature in his medical assessment regarding Caval's health while trying not to tip off Sloan in any way. Bashir claims that without a cellular analysis, it would be difficult to diagnose Caval's disease. Sloan has an answer for that. He'll provide the good doctor with a microcellular adhesive, which, with a handshake, would capture enough genetic material for Bashir's tests. Back to Romulus, then. Returning to the reception area, Bashir pretends to bump into Caval and extends his hand in friendship once again and to see if he had any more questions about the quickening virus. Responding with a curt no, Caval invites Dr. Bashir to more comfortable quarters to further discuss certain other matters. However, Dr. Bashir soon realizes that these more comfortable accommodations are in fact an interrogation room and that Caval has escorted him into his world of the Tal Shiar as two guards descend upon Bashir with an assortment of very impressive interrogation technologies. Act 5. After spending some time trying to extract information from Bashir, impressed with the resistance from his genetically enhanced parietal cortex, Caval has his guards escort Dr. Bashir to yet another room. He is soon forced to sit in front of the Romulan Continuing Committee, of which the proconsul resides, Senator Kretak also sits before them and is answering to charges of treason against the state. Dr. Bashir, in an attempt to exonerate the senator from her allegations, regales the entire committee of a plot to assassinate Caval and to destabilize the Federation-Romulan alliance, a plot which Senator Kretak has taken no part in. However, she has, as the charges against her contain conspiracy and treason, as she, in fact, has been discovered trying to find the very files that Bashir needs to prove the aforementioned conspiracy. However, no matter how transparent or forthcoming Bashir or Kretak's testimonies are, Kaval's account of what happened changes everything, as he has his guards escort into the proceedings a bloodied and battered Mr. Sloan into the room. At this time, Kaval recounts the truth of what actually happened, or more to the point, what Sloan has confessed. Sloan's interrogation revealed that he is simply a rogue agent, whose mentor, Admiral Fujisaki, was assassinated by Romulan spies. Bent on revenge, Sloan invented Section 31 in an attempt to recruit Dr. Bashir's talents for the very purpose of which Bashir admitted earlier, to assess Caval's medical condition. The entire plot was in fact an assassination attempt, but one that Sloan manufactured so that he himself could have the satisfaction of watching Caval die. And with that, Sloan musters up one last attempt at making good on his plans, steals a disruptor from one of the guards, and disappears suddenly in a flash of light as Caval fires upon him with his own weapon. The proconsul then orders Bashir back to the Bellerophon and the senator to be taken into custody to await their final sentencing. Later, in Admiral Ross's ready room, Bashir confronts the admiral about Sloan, because only moments before... Bashir was trying to sleep, but just couldn't make any sense of what actually happened on Romulus, until now. Interrogating the Admiral to the point of insubordination, Ross takes off his comm badge, as does Bashir, as the Admiral states that what is discussed now is off the record. He tells Bashir that he has been right about everything, 
that Ross, Sloan, and Section 31 needed to gain intelligence on the Romulans because of what will eventually happen after the war, and that Senator Kretak is in fact innocent, but simply a casualty of a plan to protect the greater good. Bashir forces Ross to also admit that he faked his aneurysm to drive Bashir willingly into the senator's trust, and to, in turn, maneuver her to provide Bashir with state secrets of which he has now been accused of doing. In the climax of their confrontation, Ross proclaims that all of this has been done in order to save countless Starfleet lives from this already costly war. Ross then quotes the ancient philosopher Cicero as he declares, Inter arma enum silent legis. In times of war, the laws fall silent. And an indictment asking Ross, are we now a 24th century Rome? Disgusted with all that has transpired, Bashir picks up his comm badge and leaves. Back on Deep Space Nine, and once again trying to get some sleep, Dr. Bashir's keen senses are awakened by Sloan, alive and well, and deeply thankful for all that the good doctor has done on Section 31's behalf. And even though Bashir is outraged and appalled at what Sloan did to him and to the senator, all Sloan has to say is that it's because of good people like Bashir, people of good conscience and good principle, that Section 31 exists to protect them. And with that, Sloan politely takes his leave once again into the empty corridors and shadows. The end. Norman, so much plot. I mean, that that is so the much very plot. definition of a plot-driven episode, and uh, you nailed it all. So thank you for that recap. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there, there's so much to discuss here, and I feel like even at the beginning, I just – I took great pleasure in that – verbal sparring around the table. Everybody's being very diplomatic. They're being very cool. Mm -hmm. But these little places they can find to take a dig at each other. You know, well, why aren't our ships getting repaired first? Well, the Klingon ships have more damage. Well, they they need more repairs. Well, uh, because we fight harder, (laughs) you know. I just Or more recklessly. uh, Just every (laughs) line of that was uh, was perfect. Um, I also enjoyed getting to see a little bit of Garrick. I feel like Garrick has just been sadly Mm -hmm. missing these last few episodes where we really could have used him every now and then. And uh, he, he describes to Bashir, you know, you'll find the predominant color to be gray. Dude, Garrick, you are literally gray. (laughs) <laughs> that is literally your color. And by the way, you live on DS9 where everything is gray, except for Cork Spar. I think he could literally like like strip off his clothes, which for Garrick probably is an invitation for yes. partying. Yeah. But nonetheless, you know, he could do that and like literally like blend inside of everything yeah. on Rhyming List, you know, according to his I know, right. <laughs> right. Um, the funny thing is, is that Garrick's, you know, his observations on Romulus, it's so gray and colorless. Has he not seen the state of the color palette, or actually lack thereof, on Deep Space Nine and the uniforms? Yes. We, we, we just uh, you know mentioned it a few episodes ago. Where uh, remember uh, uh, we had Quark and Rom trying to carry out that uh, that cloaking device, and they get stopped mm-hmm. by Martok and uh, Cisco. And he's talking about the paint. <laughs> right, he's talking right, about the right. color of the bulkheads. Is like, oh, I wish that uh, my room looked like this. Well, it does because everything is that color gray. Oh, what a lovely shade of gray. Which shade of gray yeah. is this? It's one of the yeah, 50. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you have your choice of gray or all the other grays here. Yeah, so that that was nice. Oh, and, and speaking of inside people's rooms, because this happens not once but twice in the episode, Bashir 
waking up to find Sloan sitting in his quarters, I'm sorry, but Bashir's reaction is not the reaction that I would have. <laughs> I mean, right. Bashir keeps his cool. I would not have kept anything close to my cool uh, finding that happening. I, I mean, I don't know what it is. I mean, I, obviously, it's a contrivance for sure. for being on a TV show, but I would lose my mind if I saw someone sitting oh. literally like at the foot of my bed unannounced, yeah, right? I would jump five feet, and you better believe it, my hand would be on that security button, and I'd be reaching for the phaser and all of that all at once. Yeah. So... Wouldn't it be easier for Sloan to walk around Deep Space Nine in, like, a Federation uniform instead of, like, his couture of high-fashion black leather from head yes. to toe? Isn't that kind of weird? I mean, I know that, okay, people out there, don't send me the emails. I know that it's Section 31. They have site-to-site transport. They can beam out in moments notice. We know that because of the episode. But still. Yeah, right? Come on, come man. On. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Even though, like, William Sadner can wear pretty much anything and look fabulous. That's true. Let's yeah, be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, speaking of Sloane and Garrick, mm-hmm. though, I think that Garrick's in this episode to prime Bashir's spy interests again. Mm-hmm. Because he kind of is like the bookend of Sloane. You know, Garrick's like, don't you want to be part of Starfleet Intelligence? Huh? Huh? Don't you want to? I know you. Right. And then Sloane's like, hey, you want to be part of Section 31? Because we're doing something real here. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. And he does mention it as like, you know, the, this would be the real thing, not not your fantasy version of it. So that is mm-hmm. kind of cool. Uh, and, and speaking of, you know, maybe Bashir's uh, fantasy life and personal life overlapping there, he does, as I mentioned, he keeps a phaser in the dresser, just like right there, uh, because of course he does. And as we've seen recently on DS9, weapons are everywhere. And I have to wonder if this is a change because of the war, because... I, I think I remember a time when, like, somebody would step into DS9 and then Oda was there to confiscate weapons. So, mm-hmm. but now now right. it's a different world. And we're just like, yep, yeah, everybody's got a weapon everywhere all the time. Kind of curious, though, seeing him pull the, the phaser from the drawer because I remember, like, say, like, in, back in Star Trek VI, like, all mm-hmm. of the phasers are, like, in lockers and they have to be, you know, ID'd and scanned to unlock to use. yeah. I would think that would happen on a station where a phaser can pretty much like shoot through a bulkhead and right, you know, yeah. <laughs> depressurize yeah, it, the station. It's either that, you know, behind a locked cabinet, or as we saw in a uh, in a you know Tupperware or I'm sorry, Rubbermaid uh, cabinet in a uh, cargo hold. That's also where they keep oh, right, them on right. DS9, or in a sock drawer. That is the the yeah. other important secure place you can keep a weapon on DS9. I do oh I so love the Romulan ale slash Windex that they're drinking. Uh, this is great. And that classic decanter that we saw in Star Trek two, super good. Mm-hmm. And I just I love the acknowledgement now that the trade embargo is lifted and the embargo on the Romulan ale and that nobody paid attention to it anyway. <laughs> this is <you> know. <laughs> So it's like the, the embargo on Romulan ale, is that kind of like when, you know, it's lifted so that Cuban cigars can make it back into the United right, States? Right, right, You know, something like that? Exactly. Because it's, it's similar it but different. Yeah. By the way, being uh, speaking of similar mm-hmm. but different, the Bellerophon. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I love the establishing shot of the Bellerophon because it's obviously it is, the yeah. Voyager stock yeah. footage. And it's yeah. beautiful looking. So good. But yeah, going back to the Romulan ale, how do they get that effect? I mean, the the yeah, we could like joke that it looks like Windex or it looks like tainted water, but it was actually kind of glowing this time. It was really bright blue in a bright lit scene. Yeah. 
That was really well pulled off. I have to wonder, yeah, because they, they are drinking it. It is a practical, so um, yeah, and I don't think they go to the trouble to give it any CG love in a shot like that, but it, it looked right. awfully cool. Um, also, speaking of technology, good use of hologram people in the course of spy training. Like, that, that is such a cool idea, and of course, it makes absolute sense, you know. Uh, why do the holograms blink? Oh, right. <laughs> because the actors are just like, get me out of this yes, scene. Yes, pretty much. You ever wonder right. how long it took to film those? Just for you, John, mm-hmm. because I was waiting for this for you. Yeah. I was waiting for Sloan to tell Bashir, your mission, doctor, should you choose to accept it? And then see like a pad start yes. smoking in the background. Yes, that would be so cool. <laughs> yeah, would love that. And, and uh, well, there would be a callback to Mission Impossible. I really like the callback to The Quickening because it's mm, one of those mm-hmm. examples where like it's a little payoff for the audience, just a little, a little reference there, but it's not necessary. Like you don't have to have seen that episode, but it's cool to have that bit of recognition. You know, yeah. uh, the other thing yep. I love, White dress uniforms. Nice. It looks so good. I hate do those you? uniforms. Why? I really, Why do you really do. <laughs> they just don't fit right. Oh. They don't fit anybody right. It's not actually, it's not so much the styling of them because, yeah. you know, styles are, you know, they, they're obviously, uh, they work for some, not work for others. But it's the way that they fit. Like every time somebody sits down with them, they look like they're ill-fitting or ill-tailored. They just don't look right. And even like Bashir, like who's obviously very slight and and very thin. I don't know, man. Like what? Did they they appeared in what? Insurrection, I think. Star Trek Insurrection or maybe earlier. Insurrection. I've never liked those episodes. Sorry, folks. Never liked them. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) That's fair. After the lecture... Is it a good idea for kind of quote unquote spies to be hanging out in a room that could be potentially bugged I, and just having a conversation? I so have a comment on that in the next section. So yeah, we'll, okay. we'll hang on to that for <laughs> sure, for sure. Um, he, I, I love in the uh, the kind of courtroom scene that 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 assembly room scene. Uh, there is no section thirty one. So in an episode full of fake outs and questionable allegiances, that was one of my favorites. I thought that was very yeah, that cool was good. To that was sold well that for to sure. Us. Yeah. So. In the last couple of episodes, this episode and then, say, uh, Field of Fire, Mm -hmm. there's been this focus on split-second beaming technology being used. There's a lot of faith being placed in that technology that it will actually work. Is it being a little overplayed at this point? Yes. 100%. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because I, it raises too many questions. Who activates it, and when, and what if it goes wrong, and can it be traced? And all, you, you know, yes, we we have the the sort of gimme that well, the Section Thirty One transporter can't be traced. Okay, fine, but you still on Romulus, you're in a room with a lot of people, and there is split second timing. Somebody's got to be watching to make sure it happens. I mean. It it just raises so many questions, but we kind of have to accept it because of the story. I mean, speaking of raising questions, mm-hmm. all right, I have a big question for you, and I have a big question for the yep. audience. How does removing a communicator badge ensure privacy? Mm-hmm. Or is that just basically kind of like a visual cue of saying, we're not talking as Starfleet officers anymore, just 
two regular guys having a conversation trying to air out our differences. Is is that what that was you all know, about? You I, know, I thought it could be either or both because I, I like the symbolic gesture of taking it off because mm-hmm. we've seen other times people do that, you know, just taking off the badge as a symbol that they are walking away from Starfleet. Um, but right. there is also a chirp each time, very slight, they took it off and each time they put it on. And sure. it kind of makes you wonder, as we've speculated before on Mission Log every now and then, particularly back in the TNG days, is the computer just always listening to everything that's going on? And what do you have to do to get it to not do that? Because if somebody gives a command, sometimes they're saying, computer, do this, or sometimes it's just Cisco to Kira or Cisco to Odo, whatever. And the badge sometimes is tapped, sometimes it's not. So there's this question about what does the badge actually do and how connected is it? So, yeah. So are you saying, John, that, uh, say, I can't remember if it's season five or six, but there's an episode titled For the Uniform. Should that be retitled or retconned to For For the the Badge? badge? Because they're still wearing their uniforms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the badge, the badge is where all the action is. I think that's where we're saying here. Yeah. The the action, the action okay. By the way, well, speaking yeah, of that, though, well, oh, I say uh, yeah. no, no, always no. appropriate in an episode like this. You have my permission. You at home watching, uh, you can do a golf clap whenever you're watching something, and they say the title of that piece in the dialogue. And particularly when it's oh, yeah, totally. particularly when it's Latin, you get to double golf clap on that. You know, I I, I appreciate the the direction in the scene where where Admiral Ross, you know, when they're done with their conversation, he puts on his badge. Bashir picks up his badge and just looks at him with this, just this disdain, like, oh, I need to take a shower. Doesn't even put on his badge. Thought that was amazing. I can't figure out how anyone wearing that much leather can sneak into anyone's room without all the squeaking waking them up. We'll get right back to Inter Arma Inim Salent Legis after a word from this week's sponsor. And just to remind everyone, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check them out at betterhelp.com slash mission log. So, you know, Norman, you and I have talked about therapy before and how important that is and uh, what advocates we are that people take care of their mental health. And you know, there's a lot of ways to talk about it, and one way would be through analogies. Uh, so, like, we get our cars tuned up frequently to prevent bigger issues down the road. <laughs> you know, pun not intended, but clearly mm. recognized. Um, uh, you get annual checkups. Uh, you, you go to the gym because you want to maintain your physical wellness, and you want to prevent injury and disease. Or, you know, look at home. You, you do chores regularly. Uh, I assume that you do. Some I of try. Us, <laughs> some of us more often than others. Yeah. But it's to avoid having this giant mess of a house and, and the infection and problems that could come along with that. So think about therapy for your mental health the same way you would think of all those regular maintenance things that you do for yourself. It is routine maintenance for your mental and emotional wellness to prevent the bigger issues down the road. And it's so important to reiterate, going to therapy doesn't mean that something is wrong with you. It means you're investing in yourself to keep your mind healthy. 
mean, these are all great points, John, because you see like advertised ad nauseum, lose weight, get fit, get strong, you know, get a six pack. Mm -hmm. But you don't see that at the same frequency with mental health. And I think that this is where BetterHelp is trying to make that difference. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And it's much more affordable than, say, in-person therapy. And you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. And as I said before, you invest in all of these other things that make your life better. So why not invest in everything else and not your mind? Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Here, here. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. And Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash mission log. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash mission log. And we do thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this week's show. All right, Norman, uh, I, I won't say the Latin again. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it later. But No, say it, say it, say it. <laughs> it arme enum silent legis. Okay, you practiced for so I did, long. I did. I had to call my mom and everything. But, you know, we got there. We got there. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do want to talk about something that is sort of fun for me because this is a heavy episode. And there's a lot of, you know, misdirection and building tension. And we'll talk about all of that in the wrap-up. But in our discussion here um, – there's something that's just fun to me about all these layers and layers of secrecy and kind of where they stick to it, but then they seemingly don't, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's the, the inevitable lapses in the secrecy that I think is fun to watch. So right at the top, Sloan shows up and Bashir immediately tells everything to Cisco. And of course, Sloan and anyone else paying attention would know that. They would sure. assume that. Right. But the problem is you can't then assume and know what happens beyond that point because then Cisco might talk to Odo and to Kira and to anybody else and to O'Brien to say, look, next time somebody transports in here, I want you to screen it and blow it up. You know, I mean, it could just be – it could be anything. So all this stuff is getting shared right away. You know, um, and, and then, as you mentioned in the last segment, you know, here's Sloan again with the Section 31 leather jumpsuit, not at all telegraphing no. bad guy in a secret organization or anything. Um, and then you fast forward to the crew members of the Bellerophon yeah. speaking very loudly <laughs> about Admiral Ross's aneurysm. Fast forward again to anyone anywhere on Romulus hanging out, talking about top secret stuff. Of course Bashir is going to get caught. Even if it wasn't a setup to begin with, of course he's going to get caught. And it, it kind of reminded me, you, you'll remember this, I'm sure, the scene in the 2015 Man from Uncle movie all right, where all right, yeah. everybody in the outdoor coffee shop, they're literally all spies. Just everybody there is a spy. They all know what's happening. Mm-hmm. And when Napoleon and Ilya sit down to, to finally hash it out in person, everybody else gets up and leaves. And it's like know? another day at the office. Sure. Yeah. 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 So I I love that this is an episode that is dramatic, but it also has a sort of fun layer where you go back and you watch and you're like, well, wait a minute. They're all they're all just spilling secrets everywhere all the time. You know, (laughs) this is not the most secure situation. So if this was a man from uncle episode, you know, from the Robert Vaughn era, would you call it the Caval affair? Ooh, the Caval affair, uh, the Romulus affair. 
Um, the Inter Arma the, NM Sealant Legacy affair? That is a lot. That is. That's a lot. Oh, but, but I do know this. I do know that in the first shot when they actually arrive, and that would be the beginning of uh, Act Two, the bottom of the screen would say somewhere on Romulus. That, that would be the, the location title. That's all okay. you'd get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about some serious <laughs> stuff because this is a serious episode. True, true. There are a lot of great lines in here. There's some dialogue that is really pointed and in, in just an instant gives you this glimpse of thinking about all the, all, all the situational differences around what's going on here and all, all the points of view around what's going on, and particularly between Bashir and, uh, and Sloan. Bashir calls it out in the beginning. This war isn't over, and you're already planning for the next. And it just, again, in an instant of dialogue, he is describing the ultimate paradox, right? Wait, John, are you saying in Latin, civis pacem parabellum? Whoa, to maintain peace, you must prepare for war? That's exactly what we're saying. Yes, there you go. Mm. And, and what's so interesting about this idea is that you and I sitting here in 2021, reading these lines, hearing these lines, it, it is almost impossible for us to see outside of that dynamic. Yeah, You know, we, we were born in a time where that is uh, the accepted truth. We are living our lives in a time that that is the accepted truth. And, it, and it's damn near impossible to think, well, well wait, but, but what if it wasn't? And, and that's where I, I want to give, you know, a tip of the hat to a show like Star Trek and the tradition of Star Trek from way back, that it's a rather radical position from time to time that it would actually be possible to not go that route or to question that reality. And uh, and I love that we just get a glimpse of that in a very personal scene here by calling out something that is critical and mm-hmm. and so important to just sort of our, our point of view about how we operate in the world and how our political entities operate in the world. You know, it reminded me a lot of the end of World War II. You had the meeting, the secret meeting at Yalta, mm-hmm. where the the Soviet Union was excluded from that meeting. The Soviet Union being allies of of the other allies, the United States and Great Britain, or the United Kingdom, yeah. because they knew that at the end of the war, Nazi Germany was devastated, right? After the dropping of the two bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, Imperial Japan was in ruins. All of the Axis powers were destroyed. But who's left? You have three major powers, two of which, combining their forces, almost equalized the Soviet Union. Yeah. So very much like the, the deliberations that were happening here with Ross and with Bashir, like if the the Romulans are standing when the dust settles, mm-hmm. it's just going to be us and them. The Klingons are out of the picture because, mm-hmm. much to Worf's chagrin and what he, you know, he so eloquently put it at the beginning, we do all the fighting. We need all the repairs. The yeah. Klingon fleet is gone. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's going to be destroyed by the end of this war. So the Romulans are left and the Federation. Yeah. What's going to happen? Hey, look, at that point, I wouldn't be feeling too confident about the Federation either. You know, Exactly. Cisco keeps, Cisco keeps getting those uh, uh, casualty reports, and it doesn't look good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what you're describing is, is a, you know, this great tradition that DS9 has about using historical parallels and a lot of it from World War II. Uh, because, of course, you know, at the time that the show was written, um, certainly that was and continues to be 
you know, the most important geopolitical uh, uh, action of generations, you know. So, of course, that becomes a touchstone that informs how stories like this are written. And uh, and I love that they're able to pull in, in that kind of depth and with uh, that kind of nuance in what they're doing. Here's another moment from that speech or, or from that uh, dialogue that I really liked. Sloan, I'll spare you the ends justify the mean speech, and you spare me the we must do what's right speech. We're not going to see eye to eye on this. <laughs> Boy, Sloan, Sloan does not listen to Mission Log. <laughs> we can say that right now. But, but here's, here's what's so interesting. He's right in that moment. He's right about their dynamic in that moment. It's just cringy and painful to see the bully holding all the cards at that moment. So please send all yeah. of your emails to Sloan. At, at section31.com. Section yeah, I, I bet somebody owns that. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the email actually doesn't exist, but it does exist, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I understand what you're saying. And I think that Sloan is actually at this point like, you know what? We can philosophize this until the cows come home. Yeah. But here's the end. At the end of the day, I have a belief, you have a belief, but we still have a job to do because the bottom line, you and I both need to protect the Federation, period. It's just how do we reconcile ourselves at the end of the day? How do we go to sleep at, at night knowing that what has it cost us in the end to make yeah. these choices? Sloan seems to be okay with catching up on his sleep. Obviously, yeah. the doctor can't or won't be allowed because Sloan won't let him sleep. Yeah. Right? That, you're right. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and what is that, though? I mean, is it just like this matter of conscience? I mean, can, can we say that Sloan doesn't have a conscience? Or is it just that his is tuned in such a way to, to think, to convince himself, no, 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 this is for the greater good? You know, this, uh, my, the the ends do justify the means in this case, and they always will. Is it just, you know, moving the needle that tiny bit in one direction that will allow him to to live with it and not have this, uh, you know, crisis of conscience? I mean, I know I've been glib about this because this is a very deep episode, and Mm -hmm. I'm trying not to go into kind of like that dark mode, but Sloan is of a certain belief system that... Yeah, yes, the ends justify the means. And he's okay with that. Mm-hmm. Are we okay with, uh, I, I guess, identifying with a character that is okay with that? That's the big question. Yeah. When we're watching an episode like this and you see Sloane, do you do that scene, like, you know, when Leonardo, Cap- uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, like in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, that gif that, you know, he points at the TV. He's like, yes, yes, yeah. that's, <laughs> I, I, I get that. Right. Is that right. us when we see that? And if it is us, are we really analyzing why that is us? Right? Are we yeah. are we of the belief that yeah, sure. As long as it protects the federation, the ends do justify the means. Yeah. Whatever it takes to make the federation survive, we do. And I think that's one of the the issues with doing what we do and discussing DS9 and why we very often, you know, hit these difficult conversations with our our listeners and other people of different points of view on DS9 is that I will always maintain that no matter how difficult things are, we have to stick to points of principle or else why do we have the principle at all? Throw it out the window because the ends justify the means all the time, Mm -hmm. you know? 
we, we don't get to pick and choose and cherry pick and say, well, our, our sense of values, our sense of ethics and morality apply here, but they don't apply over here. And hence the title of this episode about suspending, uh, uh, you know, suspending the law during uh, times of war. And, and that really is, you know, the, the heart of this episode. And, and I think we, just, we have to talk about the scene, mm-hmm. the big scene. And that, of course, is in Admiral Ross's ready room. Uh, first of all, I guess we know how Admiral Ross would feel if he ever found out about Cisco and Garrick planting evidence to bring Romulans into the war, mm-hmm. because the ends do justify the means. Uh, he he is in it enough. If you were to try to put them on a spectrum, I think we can say that Admiral Ross is more principled than a guy like Sloan, but he like Cisco probably feels his back against the wall. And will do whatever it takes to have the advantage, to have the upper hand in this. So he's I, – I, I definitely won't cut Admiral Ross all the slack. I think I can just cut him a tiny bit more slack than I can a guy like Sloan. Sure. But, but that, that, that's you know, a matter of degrees. I mean I think that the entire – for me at least, the entire discussion really hinges on this scene. Brilliant scene. Uh, mm-hmm. Barry and especially Sid. Sid kills it in this scene. Oh my God! Yeah, he's amazing. I think this is one yeah. of his finest performances. And there's that exchange where where Ross says, "Inter armor enum silent legis," mm-hmm. and, and Bashir just—I mean—or Sid, his face just says, "In a time of war, the laws fall silent." At twentieth-fourth century Rome, can uh, driven yeah. by nothing more than the certainty that Caesar can do no wrong. So I have specific questions yeah. for why he brought this up. And what this means, first of all, taking off the comm badge so that two (laughs) men can just have this conversation off the record, I think is significant. But even more so, who exactly is Caesar in this analogy? Is it the Federation? Because that's where I think that Bashir is trying to lead this comparison. But Caesar is just a man, right? He's not the whole political body. Again, the Federation. So... Is it the belief of the Federation that is Caesar? The status quo of the belief of the Federation that is Caesar? This constant that the Federation is the truth, is righteousness, to which all civilizations and governments must be accountable to answer? So when did the Federation that was charted to, quote, unquote, seek out new life and new civilizations and to boldly go become the ultimate power and the ultimate authority? How can an officer... Like Bashir moved forward with his belief in Starfleet, everything that he's learned up until this point, knowing that not only in the highest corridors of legitimate power, like Admiral Ross, to the darkest corners where Sloan operates, how can he believe and trust anyone anymore when it comes to the bigger picture of the Federation? Now, you know, he can, he can trust his friends. He can trust O'Brien. He can trust mm-hmm. Esri, et cetera, et cetera. But just think what would happen to Bashir if he was privy to what... Cisco recorded at the end of Ugh. In the Pale Moonlight. Ugh. Yeah. Right? Exactly. So that's where something like this is just, it's so compelling to watch because the irony here is this. Like, Cisco, he, he, his secret is that he maneuvered the Romulans into the Dominion War. Mm-hmm. And now Ross and Sloan, and they're this unholy alliance that they have as mm-hmm. intelligence agents are trying to dismantle this very same alliance that Cisco sold his soul to create. But in the, in the midst of all of this are the people, right? Yeah. Bashir, yeah. O'Brien, Worf, Esri, Quark. 
you know, everyone that serves yeah. under the Starfleet banner, they're, they're all pawns in this and, greater play. And by the way, we know that Bashir tells Cisco everything. <laughs> so, so he gets to report back with the entire thing and the entire conspiracy of what took place on Romulus. He, he's got no reason to keep any of this quiet. And do you think Cisco was sitting there listening going, oh, God, I got like, us yeah, into that. And now, that thing. And now what they're doing. <laughs> and, and Bashir said, what? what why, why do you look distracted? What you? Nope, nope, nope. It's nothing. It's nothing. Don't worry about it. And then he goes back to his quarters and yells at his computer again. Squeak, 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 squeak. See, who could sleep through that? You'd think a master spy would appreciate stealth and dress appropriately. Well, John, we have come to the end of Inter Armas and Sealant Legus. It's a big one. It is a very profound episode. I know that uh, our discussion and maybe our observations may have, you know, trended towards a little bit more of the of the lighter side because it's such heavy information. But here we are, um, where we ask the big questions: Does this episode hold up? Does it withstand the test of time? And have we been able to find any morals and meanings and messages contained within? So let's start with you. Let's get into it. And let's start with, did this episode hold up for you? Um, This is a tricky one because at first glance, I think it is very uneven. Uh, But I will say this, I I think this is an episode that benefits from multiple viewings. So I enjoyed it. I found myself more invested in it each time I watched it. Um, There's so much going for it. it. It is ambitious. And it has these great moments of building tension and and keeping you guessing. And it has, as we found, some very important ideas to kick around. Not one of those episodes that just comes down and tells you here's right and here's wrong, but it has these heavy ideas to consider. And let me say, all those scenes of ratcheting up Bashir's paranoia as he's trying to figure out what's going on, it, it just felt like a very Hitchcock thing to me hmm. uh, at its best mm-hmm. when this episode is firing on all cylinders. Um, I do like the fake out with Admiral Ross, especially since he's someone that we've seen for a while now. Um, of course, that made me more suspicious from the beginning, but <laughs> I'm not sure it was always effective. But it's nice to have characters that we are somewhat invested in and not just bring in entirely new people to make them take the fall. Right, you know? right. And, it, you know, it, in ways it feels like this episode bit off maybe more than it could chew. So the story suffers a bit from pacing problems. There are these great tense moments and then these long sections of exposition. So it, there are some oddities there with pacing. But, it, you know, that that's kind of a minor quibble on my part. The acting all around is so top-notch. Um and maybe I found myself thinking so much that this isn't a great episode in terms of production, more than it is this provocative episode because of the topic and because of the, the emotional investment that the characters have in these provocative big ideas. You know, when Star Trek is good and it can take a big idea, and in this case a political idea, a moral idea, but make it personal. 
that makes for compelling storytelling and it makes for something to really talk about. It is very good in terms of telling the story that it sets out to tell. So I, I think in the end, you know, final assessment, uh, it's great. It, it may not be the very best of the best when I think about DS9, but it is a great episode. And again, I will say that, you know, for anybody who maybe watched it once, I think it does better on a second or third viewing. Um, how about you, Norman? Well, I'd like to ask you a question, and this yeah. is a question for the audience as well. Are you disappointed that Admiral Ross has now become part of this list of the badmirals in Star Trek fandom. Do you think that he's a badmiral? I I have more sympathy for Ross than I do anger at Ross. Okay. And, and that is a fine line. That there, his actions are reprehensible in in so many ways. You know, maybe it's just because he put it all on the line with Bashir, told him everything. There is a certain part of me that has sympathy for him in a way that I certainly do not for a guy like Sloan. Mm -hmm. And again, we're talking about all these areas that are extremely gray, as is Romulus. Hmm, maybe that's what Garrick was trying to tell us. Hey-o. Hey-o. <laughs> um, that allows me to, or maybe it's just a familiarity with Ross that, that allows me to think, ugh. He's a guy who made bad decisions, and maybe he made those bad decisions because he felt so cornered. But what's next? Mm -hmm. Is he a guy at the end of this? Is he a guy who finds that shred of principle and takes off the badge for the last time and right. says, I can't do this because here's what I did? You know? That's a great point. I, yeah. yeah. I don't yeah. know. You know, uh, when, when, I when I, you know, watched Ross in that scene take off his badge, I just felt. I was I was on board with this guy, you know. Uh, mm. You know, he's. I was like, finally, you know, a higher up in Starfleet that isn't tainted by some type of controversy, mm. an admiral that actually acts does have the back of his people, you know, is leading, you know, from a position of honesty, of truth, of, you know, of conviction, mm -hmm. and now this happens, and I'm like, does every admiral have to fall from grace in Star Trek in some way or form or shape? I don't understand yeah. that. Or maybe that's the point of like having this story being told. Maybe that the Federation at its highest levels, it's not the Federation that you may think that it is. And yeah. maybe that's where some of my concern comes from with episodes like this, with episodes like Inquisition or with episodes like In the Pale Moonlight. Where does the trust – where does the trust uh, – get challenged, you know, or, or where do our, our heroes fall from grace? And is it really a fall from grace or is it necessary evil? Is it something that we can stomach or is it something that just is? Well, I don't think of know. this too, you know, Ross is putting an awful lot of trust in Bashir by just telling him straight up, here's everything. Mm -hmm. Now go home. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> and by the way, he just told it to literally the smartest person in the room. What, the com badge? <laughs> <laughs> okay, the other smartest person. In the right. You know, but, you know. Uh, you know, to get back to the point, I, I actually mm. think that, yes, I think that this episode does hold up, and I'm going to caveat this for, usually I say for me, but in this time mm. I'll say, if for anything, quote unquote, if for anything, because I think that this is a very powerful episode, and it's an explicit example of how truly dark the Star Trek universe has changed 
has become in mm. Deep Space Nine. And I want people to discuss this for as long as Star Trek's legacy remains. Quote, unquote, if for anything, this episode needs to be seen for the clarity it presents of a Star Trek future where this kind of narrative does exist. A Star Trek future that I personally don't agree with, but nevertheless, it still exists. Mm-hmm. It's a canonical narrative in the franchise, yeah. regardless of how I feel. Yeah. So I think that this episode needs to be discussed. Now, sure, we have episodes like Season 6, Inquisition, and In the Pale Moonlight that set the stage for this episode because it really is a direct continuation of those two episodes. Yeah. But those episodes respectively show that Sloan and Cisco, again, quote-unquote, respectively, are working within their own agendas, separate agendas. But now, in this episode, we see Starfleet, Section 31, and the Tal Shiar all working in concert together Yeah, within this alliance of intelligence agencies to ensure that no matter the outcome of the war, the fallout and the rebalancing of power has already been favored in structure of what the Federation will become and what the Romulan Star Empire will become once the dust settles. Like Bashir said, you're already planning for the next war. But where does that leave the Klingons, the Federation's allies? What about the Bajorans, who have suffered tremendously during the course of this entire series? Or what about the hundreds of governments that create the United Federation of Planets? What about their voices? Where are they represented in all of this? Well, see, I I think now you're sort of getting closer to the answer with your question about who is Caesar Mm. in this. You you know, there there is a Federation president, but I think we're also talking about some some seat of power within the Federation that ultimately uh, gets to make these calls and, uh, you know, for fear that, that these other voices don't actually get their say. They're not actually active participants, and they might be enjoying a certain level of protection and safety, uh, but at what cost if this quote-unquote Caesar is able to pull off stuff like this? So th- this is an episode of heavy topics. Is there a moral? Is there is there a, a message here to direct the audience? What do you think? Well, after repeated viewings, and I agree with you, John, every subsequent viewing from the first, at least for me, just added so much texture and layer and understanding about the narrative of this story. And I found it fascinating. But do, do you, do you, by the way, do you kind of do what I do is when you get to the end of an episode like this and, you know, the big reveal about who Admiral Ross is and what's driving him, do you sort of, when you rewatch it, do you look for his reactions? Do you look for the tells on his face or anything else uh, you know, do you sort of because I, I do that, like I'll focus on a character differently when I rewatch in something like this. Honestly, I, I, in this episode, I found the foreshadowing, you know, very uh, just very compelling, especially Garrick, mm. because Garrick kind of sets the tone for this entire yeah. episode. <laughs> right. Watch it again, people. Garrick is yeah. he's insidious like root beer. Yeah, he yeah. just gets under Bashir's skin and kind of primes the pump there in a way where Bashir can't help but lean into his curiosity. Yeah. He's very easy to profile, especially with people in the intelligence level communities like Garrick, like Sloan, even Ross. They know that he's not going to go out there 
and confess unless he's going to confess to higher levels up. He's not going to confess yeah. to his friends. So they feel safe and secure that way. I can see why they don't worry about him so much. But after subsequent feelings, what I really came away with from this episode, from a moral or meaning or message standpoint, mm. it's repeated in that scene with Admiral Ross, inter arma enim silent legis. And I loved how Sid just spits it back with him like with such venom in his acting. Yeah. In time of war, the law falls silent. But you have to ask the bigger question. What is the law? Right? The law, mm -hmm. by definition, is just a system of rules which a particular country or community recognizes as regulating the actions of its members and which it may enforce by the imposition of penalties. So the bigger question, if those can be so easily silenced as per the Latin phrase and justified because of war, then do these justifications cease during times of peace? Mm -hmm. When does that end? When does the manipulation mm -hmm. of power begin and end? Does it start with war and end with peace? Or, hail Caesar, does it continue on in order to control the social and political structure of a country or a nation or a government? This episode proves that the balance of power resides not necessarily in the governmental powers of the Federation— but those who maneuver in the shadows, as Sloan justifies to Bashir, quote, you're also the reason Section 31 exists. Someone has to pretend men like you from a universe that doesn't share your sense of right and wrong. Who makes that choice and why? What gives them the authority and why? And how can we not make the parallel to say what Jack Nicholson's Colonel Jessup says at the end of A Few Good Men? <laughs> in fact, John... And if you indulge me, folks, don't worry, I'm not going to do a line reading. <laughs> I think you and I were thinking the same thing, but yes, go ahead. So in his speech yeah. at the end of A Few Good Men, it's essentially the same speech that Sloan's giving Bashir if you just replace a word here or there. I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You weep for Senator Kretak and you curse Section 31. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know, that Kretak's faith, while tragic, probably saved lives, and my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at Starfleet parties, you want me in Section 31. You need me in Section 31. Sounds about right, doesn't it? Yeah. A hundred percent. I was thinking a very similar thing. Well, I'm going to take uh, this bit uh, slightly differently. And uh, in terms of the, the final uh, wrap up here, the morals, meanings, messages, and I'll say this, that I, I really admire Bashir's optimism in this. He has a principled position and the way he keeps getting beat up for it, literally and figuratively, mm. he is us. A at least he should be us. He's the voice of optimism, though he is pragmatic, given that. He's genuinely working for the long-term peace, but not the kind of peace that comes from just taking out the enemy, rather the kind that comes from leading with honesty and trust. That is a difference in his approach versus a guy like Sloan. So the message here may be a downer, 
to be quite honest. You know, there, there's this implication that Section 31 has been around, will be around, and the bigger the institution is, the higher the stakes are. It's inevitable that organizations like that will exist. And I said it before and I'll say it again. If you can't conceive of a world, even in fantasy and fiction, where it's possible to be truthful, to be honest, and to act on principle, then you need to try much, much harder. It's only when you can imagine those things are possible that you can actually work toward their reality. I'm pleased that Bashir gets to keep his principles intact by the end of this. Um, and I'll, you know, re read this line here, Kretek says to Bashir, they are Federation citizens working to advance your interests. That makes them your responsibility re regarding Section 31. And what Bashir says, I love his comeback to this, you're absolutely right. That's why I'm doing everything I can to stop them. That is the correct answer. We don't throw up our hands in defeat. We don't assume that that's just how things have to be. So this might be one of those, you know, tough to get through episodes or morals, meanings, messages, but it, it does something Star Trek can and should do from time to time, which is remind us about the places we've gone wrong, like gross injustices during wartime, and then raise the red flag so we don't do it again. And maybe that is the best thing about this episode. We all could, we all should, we must be Bashir. The way science fiction is a reflection of current reality, he's the one who now gets to look at the way the world works around him and decide that he can still maintain a point of view that's better. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Penumbra. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky. Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. That was a really heavy episode. It should be smooth sailing from here on out. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.